0: to all the sins of Wisconsin. This is Fallon and I'm here with Mims. How are you?
1: i doing great. For you? I'm good.
0: Well, I have nothing. No, me neither.
1: <laughs> okay, well, if you're into it, we can just hop right into my story. All right, let's do it. So, This is what I love about our listener base. They are fantastic when it comes to sinner suggestions. This story um, was messaged to us, and I read into it, and another one that I've never heard of, and when I started researching it, I was just like, oh my gosh. I don't know how I haven't heard about this one before. So, great job with it. And so, I'm gonna do the story of Brianna Schneller. Okay. And my sources are Kylie's Truecrime.com, NCB 15, um, Wausau Daily Herald, and the Cinema Hall So, Brianna Schneller was a senior at DC Everest High School um she was a very good student an all-around good person she was also a member of family career and community leaders of america so just <laughs> doing everything and was the only person in the state of wisconsin to qualify to participate in the national fccla star event um so it's it stands for Students Taking Action with Recognition. So she was just really soaring in the academic field at this point in her life. Awesome. So Brianna actually lived in an apartment with her fiance. Um, She was, you know, just being really mature for her age, getting everything done. So she lived with her fiance, Sebastian, Ramirez, and his brother, Tilo Ramirez. So the brothers worked at El Tequila Salsa in Rib Mountain. And that's a Mexican restaurant. Um, Brianna worked as a waitress at El Mescal in Rib Mountain. So basically the same type of job, but different locations. Mm-hmm. On Saturday, May 2nd of 2009, the brothers left for their shifts at um, around 10 a.m. So that left her home by herself. Later at around 1.15, Hugo went back to the apartment and felt like something was wrong as soon as he walked in. Just this eerie feeling washed over him. Um... His brother's bedroom door was open, so he peered in and unfortunately he saw Brianna laying on the floor with a towel covering her face. So his gut feeling was right. Uh, Hugo said he called 911 and he ran to the neighbor's house to ask them to call oh he couldn't call 911 i'm sorry and so then he ran to the neighbor's house to try to call from their phone um and the neighbor relayed to the dispatcher that hugo told her that his brother's girlfriend was dead so the dispatcher told the neighbor that the police were on their way and hugo had to stay there When the police arrived, Hugo came and met with the officers and led them to where Brianna was. So, when the officers walked in and surveyed the apartment, they noticed everything was covered in blood. So, it was pretty gruesome. And the blood had started to dry. Uh, So, Mm. they also found an iron on the floor and it had blood on it as well so it was literally a bloodbath just like every he every didn't, inch. he didn't notice that when he walked in <laughs> apparently not okay they also noticed two knives from they were found in the bathroom sink the tip of one of the knives was broken and oh, wow. a shoe impression was found on the bathroom rug. So it was just brutal. It was frenzied. It was just, just seemed like it was so chaotic.
0: It sounds chaotic.
1: So Dr. Robert Corliss, a forensic pathologist, later testified that Brianna was brutally beaten and stabbed multiple times in the chest, neck, and wrist. Clearly, the attacker was sloppy and an amateur when it came to this type of crime probably never had done this before it was just so like not something that this person was familiar in doing not that you should be familiar in killing somebody but it just seemed so like yeah. what like a first time thing yeah. yeah not planned out exactly um, so police wanted to find Branda's killer as soon as possible. The gravity of the crime was horrendous and it completely shook the community. You know, this is a gem of a, of a girl in her, you know, in her prime, almost having everything in her life going so well, like she has an apartment, she has a fiance and she's like really in love and she is going to school. She's, you know, uh, just a part of these clubs and everything and just really having a good life. And then, you know, it's just not something that you want to happen in your community.
0: Yeah, I remember when it happened and I remember it being really shocking.
1: Right. So fortunately, only days later, um, police arrested a man by the name of Paul, or I'm sorry, Raul Ponce Rocha. Um, He was an undocumented Mexican man who lived in Wausau and worked with the Ramirez brothers at that restaurant. They came across his name by questioning the Ramirez's brother's co-workers. When he was questioned, he quickly told the officers that he had an alibi. He stated that he went to go pick up another co-worker, a Luciano who conveniently lived at the same apartment complex that Brianna lived at. So this didn't sit well with the investigators. It just seemed too convenient. It didn't seem like he really tried to have a, like a solid alibi. So they dug a little deeper. When they talked to Sebastian, um, he told police that he was, he saw Brianna texting earlier that morning and Sebastian is the uh, fiance. Mm-hmm. Um, He saw Brianna texting earlier that morning before he left for work, but the phone was not found in the apartment upon sweeping the crime scene. So that kind of was like a light bulb moment for the police. They trace mm-hmm. the cell phone and it led them to a dumpster behind El Tequila Salsa, which specific was specifically used for cardboard. Um, the phone was inside a bag, along with two pairs of Brianna's underwear and two mismatched gloves. So they're narrowing down. Another nail in the coffin for Raul was the security camp footage. It showed him leaving the restaurant around 10.19 a.m., but Luciano, the co-worker that he supposedly picked up, didn't arrive until 10.48, and just five minutes later, they were seen entering the restaurant again. So none of that makes sense, and if you could recall, the the brothers had a shift at 10 a.m. Who would know that besides other people that also had to work at that same time? Yeah,
0: or friends of theirs or something.
1: Right. It has to be somebody that knows their schedule. Exactly. So the police knew that their hunch was not wrong at this point. They got a a search warrant for Raul's house and found several pieces of women's underwear and a glove in his bedroom that matched one of the gloves found in the dumpster. And the cherry on top, as if we needed any more cherries, is... The murder weapon an old iron handle was found to have traces of Rose DNA on it, as did the glove and and the restaurant takeout bag recovered from the dumpster so mm-hmm. it just you can't deny DNA right. So armed with the evidence, police arrested and charged Raúl Ponce Rocha with first-degree intentional homicide. Investigators said that Raúl's motive was to go to the apartment to steal her underwear. Unfortunately, he was shocked to find her home and decided to kill her, um, which they think was the reason why it was such a chaotic and frenzied crime scene, because it was just mm-hmm. not spur of the moment. Obviously, he grabbed the knives from their kitchen and the ironing um the iron was from that home so it just seemed like he was going in there being a pervert and dipping while he thought that it was going to be empty right um unfortunately like I said before he was shocked to find her he decided to kill her during testimony Rolo stated that another man by the name of sergio juarez um may have been brianna's killer leaving him to be innocent of the crime um sergio was the prosecution's bombshell witness though um and they love that he would he used this other guy as the the scapegoat because they're like well if you're really gonna want to bring him up we're just gonna like bury you with that person <laughs> So he took the stand and under oath stated he could not have committed the murder because he had left Wausau at nine thirty AM to do taxes that morning in Madison. Hmm. And he had, you know, alibis for that. Other people that, you know, said, yep, that's, that's correct. So really um, Raul kind of just made himself look like an idiot with that. Right. Sergio's brother, Jorge, Testified um, those events were accurate, corroborating his alibi. And in January 2011, the jury convicted Raul on all four counts: first-degree intentional homicide, burglary with a dangerous weapon, and two counts of theft. um, Which is awesome that he they nailed him with theft for stealing underwear. Mm He was then sentenced to life in prison without the chance parole and he's currently serving a sentence in the Waupon Correctional Institution. Um, There was an outpouring of grief a few days after Brianna's death when hundreds of people turned out for a community vigil held in her honor. Her brutal death truly devastated people who knew her, who knew of her, and people who didn't even know her personally people just were shocked that something like this can happen to such a beautiful person and as of 2019 it was reported that Brianna's father Craig had intentions on meeting the man who ripped his daughter away from him and his family Craig understandably was shaken by losing his daughter especially in such a gruesome way right Um, Craig stated that he is now in a place where most of the anger has been transformed into a form of never-ending sadness, which is just brutal for a parent. Right. It's a softer emotion than what he felt after Brianna's death, and it doesn't dominate his thoughts and actions, as when she passed away, he had an overwhelming sense of guilt Um, and here's why he felt guilty because he was never comfortable with Brianna moving in with Sebastian and Hugo, um, before they were married. So he felt like he let his little girl move in and kind of was like, here you go into the world, you're becoming an adult. And he had, he felt some blame for that, even though that's just what happens in life. Right. And it's not, because he disapproved of the relationship he and other family members really loved Sebastian and their relationship so it wasn't because of that in the end he relented and Brianna was an adult and free to live on her own so um he was like you got to do what you got to do uh Craig stated quote it's still obviously a work in progress it will always be As time goes by, things get easier, but still certain times, events, days, or a particular song or something will come on and it'll hit that chord of grief and sadness a little bit, end quote. So one of Craig's top priorities right now is to preserve uh, Brianna's memory. He doesn't want Brianna to be known for the way she died. He wants people to remember how she lived, and that's why he ended up Cooperating with the producers of Murder in the Heartland on the ID channel, which we love, Mm -hmm. and Craig stated, "It's remarkable what, in her passing, we've been able to accomplish." I feel that she kind of keeps me going. "End quote." So I love that part. Right, even after in in death, she is just a, a positive light to many people.
0: Right, and that's beautiful.
1: Yeah, I agree. So, what a what a another amazing sinner suggestion! Thank you for sending that into us and letting us dive into that because it was such a good story. It it made me tear up a little bit when I read how the community was just so heartbroken about it, and um, just a, a good story to cover.
0: Yeah, poor girl.
1: Yeah.
0: All because you wanted to steal some underwear. You can just buy some underwear.
1: It's disgusting. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, there is sites everywhere where people will sell their used underwear. Like, you just do that. Yeah. And unfortunately, she lost her life because of that. And it's just so stupid. Because I feel like the people that have the most potential always lose their lives so early on.
0: It does seem like that oftentimes. Yeah. All right. Great job. Thank you. Today, I'm discussing the wrongful conviction of Audrey Edmonds. And my source today is law.umich.edu. So the University of Michigan Law School. All right. So people didn't know every exoneration. They have a registry the Michigan Law School does. Oh. So you can see everybody that's been exonerated and you can see like what led to their exoneration and what led to their wrongful conviction. Okay. So you can see like they use junk science in this case and they use like jail informants in this case or like the different things that go wrong in cases, they categorize that. So you can look and see what the common threads are for all of these cases. Wow. So when you start scrolling and just seeing how many cases there are it's really heartbreaking yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah yeah that is awful it is that's really cool though that there's a a place where you can go and it's so categorized and boiled yeah. down to, to it so that's really awesome
0: yeah it's really interesting and then you can go it'll tell you like which state they happened in. didn't And Wisconsin has more cases than I knew of. There's a lot. Illinois has the most, though. That's a random fact. Illinois has the most wrongful convictions in the country.
1: That's crazy. I think
0: it has something to do with, like, the problems they were having in Chicago some years back before they cleaned up their DA's office.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: But I don't know that for sure. It's just my theory. (laughs) All right. So let's talk about Audrey Edmonds. In 1995, Audrey was a stay at home mom and she often babysat the neighborhood kids. She's like, I'm going to be at home. So, you guys need a babysitter. I'm here, drop the kids off. And I'm like, that's so sweet. Like the neighborhood mom.
1: Yes. That's so cute.
0: (laughs) It is. On October 16th, 1995, Cindy Beard dropped off her seven month old daughter, Natalie. And she told Audrey, like, Natalie has been a little fussy. She only ate half her bottle this morning, but otherwise she seemed okay. So I'm guessing she probably just thought, like, it was something, like, a minor, like, ear infection or something. Because babies get a lot of little things that make them extra fussy. Right. So Audrey is like, okay. She took Natalie and laid her down in the bedroom with her bottle And just left her in there so she could get some more rest and hopefully feel better. About 30 minutes later, she came back in the room to check on her. And it appeared that Natalie had possibly was choking on her bottle. Oh. Because something seemed off. And she tried to um, stop her from choking or see what was going on. And Natalie became unresponsive. So Audrey ran to the neighbor's house to call 911, and the paramedics were there quickly, and they arrived. They found that baby Natalie had fixed and dilated pupils, and she was taking really short breaths. So soon after they arrived, she stopped breathing, and she didn't regain consciousness. Oh, man. So uh, an autopsy was done on poor little baby Natalie and it showed that she had brain damage and the forensic pathologist ruled that the cause of death was shaken baby syndrome. Yikes. And for people that don't know shaken baby syndrome is when an infant is shaken so hard that the brain rotates inside their skull which causes severe and potentially deadly brain injury but often without any external signs of harm. So this is the definition of shaken baby syndrome at the time that this case was going on because it's a little bit different now. So shaken baby syndrome was said to involve a telltale triad of symptoms, which would be brain swelling, brain hemorrhaging, and retinal hemorrhaging. And one that's present in an infant that doesn't have any signs of abuse, like any outward bruising or anything they determined that the baby had to have been violently shaken. Back in 1995, it was thought that no other injuries or pathologies could possibly cause these three symptoms to occur at the same time. And that when they found these things, it had to be because of shaken baby syndrome. And they also believed that shaken baby syndrome would cause a baby to become unresponsive immediately so whoever had the last physical care of the baby had to be the person that caused the injuries. So you can probably see where this is going.
1: Yep, I do, which is unfortunate.
0: Mm-hmm. So on March 19th of 1996, Audrey was charged with first-degree reckless homicide. And she turned herself in on March 21st, but she still maintained her innocence. Mm-hmm. Despite her pleas of innocence, the case was still proceeding to trial. At trial, numerous witnesses for the prosecution stated that shaken baby syndrome was the only thing that made sense. And, But nobody ever mentioned the fact that Natalie had been taken to the hospital dozens of times. And several days before her death, her parents had taken her in for lethargy, irritability, and vomiting which can indicate a brain injury. Oh, wow. The prosecution said this history was irrelevant because clearly Natalie had been shaken to death, which means that Audrey had to be guilty. Oh. And the defense could find just one expert, a pediatric neurologist, to testify that the injuries could have been caused earlier before Natalie was in Audrey's care. And then numerous friends and neighbors testified that Audrey was a great person. She was incredibly patient. She was great with children. Like, she volunteered to babysit these children. She wasn't a person that was like, I don't want to take care of these kids. She was offering, like, I will take care of these kids. So, that's not generally the kind of person that does that.
1: Right. And, like, it's not like she was saying, I'm going to water your plants for you. Like, she's taking a whole responsibility of a person. Like, that's not just like (laughs) something you do willy nilly.
0: Right. But unfortunately, the jury was not swayed by any of this. And on November 26, 1996, Audrey was convicted and she was sentenced to 18 years in prison.
1: Oh, God.
0: I know. I can't imagine being in her position. It's so horrible. Yeah. Because I'm sure she's already traumatized because she's watching this baby regularly she probably loves the baby and then the baby dies in front of her she can't save the baby and now all of a sudden she's going to prison
1: just like a roller coaster of terribleness
0: right so audrey went on to appeal but in 1999 her appeal was denied as were two subsequent petitions for a new trial In 2001, she went out for parole, but she was denied despite model behavior because the parole board found her to be unrepentant.
1: They wanted for her to say what she didn't do. Yeah, which
0: is one of my biggest pet peeves about our system is that if you're innocent and you go out for parole... You're not going to repent because no. that's evidence that you did it and you're maintaining your innocence. Right. So you can't get out. You're stuck there. But actual murderers who are fake repentant
1: mm-hmm. get free.
0: hmm It doesn't make any sense.
1: No. No. Like, I know a lot of
0: people will say, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. But a lot of people really didn't do it. Mm, yeah. So in 2003, the Wisconsin Innocence Project came and took on her case. So thankful for them.
1: Yeah, seriously.
0: By then, new medical research had cast serious doubt on le- the legitimacy of shaken baby syndrome. By this time, many experts argued that it's physically impossible for such severe brain damage to be caused by shaking alone without there being injuries to the skull or the spine. And that's what I was thinking the whole time. Like I would think that would be common sense. If you snap a baby's head back far enough, they're going to have injuries to their spine because they can't even hold their head up by
1: themselves. Right.
0: Yep. And then there is also increasing evidence that other injuries, including things like shortfalls and also lingering effects of birth trauma, can produce can produce the diagnostic triad of symptoms that they used to believe prove shaken baby syndrome,
1: I feel like nobody ever talked about birth trauma like I feel like yeah. maybe people to this day don't even know like that sometimes the the baby comes out and they're black and blue like it's just yeah, it's a pretty intense thing that happens.
0: <laughs> it is yeah, it definitely is.
1: We're all parties. We're all
0: parties. And so they decided that there was mounting evidence that a baby who is suffering from these symptoms would not necessarily become responsive, unresponsive right away. Because if you have a brain bleed, it could be minor, but if it doesn't heal, that's, I can't talk today, blood that's building up in your brain continuously. So even a minor brain injury, which can happen when you're born, Mm -hmm. if nobody realizes that, nobody's monitoring it, it can eventually cause the baby to be unresponsive.
1: Hmm.
0: Wow! Because like my daughter was born premature, she had a brain bleed, we had to monitor it every single day, they had to do ultrasounds every single day. Wow. To make sure it's shrinking and not growing because if it's growing, then you have to relieve the pressure from their head.
1: You're right. Oh, wow. That's so, crazy. Yeah.
0: So, but if you don't know, the baby seems normal, but anything could have happened. Mm-hmm. And like a seven month old could have been climbing on something, fell down, bumped her head, and nobody realized how
1: bad it was. Yeah. Toddlers and little little babies are everywhere. They're bouncing around. They're, they're, they're crazy mm-hmm. so yeah they are crazy
0: and I mean it sounds like her parents had been taking her to the hospital regularly so right something was off long before this day yeah so due to all these new findings the forensic pathologist that did the autopsy Dr. Robert Huntington III began to doubt his own testimony So he at an evidentiary hearing in 2007. He came and testified that he no longer believed it was clear that Natalie died shortly after being injured. He couldn't determine when the injuries occurred compared to her death. And then five other doctors came and testified on Audrey's behalf and said that neither the cause nor the timing of the injuries could be determined from the available evidence.
1: Yet she slept in prison. Yeah,
0: so that was six people that testified. And the trial court judge still denied her motion for a new trial. Ooh. After hearing
1: all of that. These are medical experts, not just one, not just two, but six. And then the person that was on trial yeah. testifying against her, it was like, well, maybe not. Yeah, that's
0: you don't take that like, The comp- person that puts you in prison comes and was like my bad science changed right i fucked up i'm here now to fix it and the judge is like no you can stay there that is ludicrous it is but fortunately the innocence project didn't give up they took the case to the wisconsin fourth district court of appeals who overturned audrey's conviction on uh, january 31st of 2008 due to the new scientific evidence and they ordered a new trial Because that's, I don't know if people know, that's all the court of appeals can do. They don't just vacate it. If you petition for a new trial, they'll give you a new trial. And then the next step is she was released on bond on February 6th, 2008, which very quickly, just a week after the case was overturned, she got out on bond. And then on July 11th, the prosecution finally said, okay, this is enough. And they dismissed the charges against her.
1: Good. You are finally getting it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So after 13 years of dealing with this, she finally got to be free.
1: I can't imagine. Wasn't she sentenced to 20, you said? 18. Yeah,
0: she served served 12 because it started a year before she was sentenced. So she served 12 out of the 18 years. She damn near did almost all of it. Yeah, she did and oh she was god. fighting the whole time. Oh my god. That's awful. And she wrote a memoir of her her ordeal which said is called It Happened to Audrey, a terrifying journey from loving mom to accused baby killer. Well, wow, that says it all. <laughs> yeah, because they didn't really say any information about her family and her children in the article that I read because it was focused on her conviction and her eventual eventual acquittal but she had to have kids herself because she was a stay-at-home mom so that's her whole family that's traumatized
1: for this i wonder if the parents believe that this lady you know right
0: yeah huh because either something accidentally happened in their home mm-hmm. or something purposely happened in their home and then mm-hmm. they dropped the baby off, mm-hmm. and Audrey went to prison. Wow. Something happened somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And now Audrey's the only one that did any time for it. That's awful.
1: And the poor baby lost her life. Right. And then her kids lost their mom being yeah. in prison.
0: Everybody lost.
1: Yeah. Awful. Mm-hmm. Mm hmm hate wrongful convictions me too yeah they make my blood boil for
0: sure
1: Mm -hmm. especially when it's
0: like this junk science or like the attorney didn't call any witnesses i'm just like i read these cases i'm like this is really the stuff that happens to people and people put so much trust in the system and they put so much trust in their attorneys and just everything and it can all let you down.
1: Yeah. Yep. Um, well, great job. Thank you. Um, definitely a different type of case, but yeah, really interesting. Really. Yeah. I wanted to
0: change it up a little bit this week.
1: Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) Um, No mysteries today. (laughs) No, no mysteries. Straight to the point. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's it for me me too all right we love you guys we do Bye. bye
0: All the Sins of Wisconsin was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Fallon and Mims. Thank you so much to all of our listeners, supporters, friends, and family that continually allow us to do what we love.
1: If you love our show as much as we love you, please give us a glowing rating and review. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to see what we are up to and email us your sinner tales at at gmail.com episodes of all the sins of wisconsin
0: are available for free wherever you listen to podcasts and don't forget forget, we we love you. you